Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. Welcome to our newest episode here at the Diplomatic History Channel at New Books Network. I'm your host, Grant Golub, and I'm a PhD candidate in the Department of International History at the London School of Economics. Uh, Today, I have with me uh, Richard Moss, who's an associate professor of political science at Old Dominion University and the coordinator of the U.S. Foreign Policy International Relations Concentration within the Graduate Program in International Studies. Um, Today, we're going to be talking about his relatively new book called The Picky Eagle, How Democracy and Xenophobia Limited U.S. Territorial Expansion. And this is sort of Richard's first academic project. He's been working on it for quite some time now. Um, And it was published with Cornell University Press uh, in uh, the spring of 2020, so right um, as the world was being turned upside down. But um, it's an excellent book, and I'm really looking forward um, to discussing it with Richard today. So thanks, Richard, for for coming for coming on and talking to me about it. My pleasure. So, Richard, I think it's um, a great great first place to start is to tell our listeners what this book is all about um, and uh, what your aims with the book were. Yeah, well, the the puzzle that that really drives the book is why the United States stopped expanding its territory. Uh, when you think about great powers in history, and you think about you know major empires and how the world map has changed over centuries and such, you know the rise and fall of great powers tends to be accompanied by territorial expansion by the powerful uh, at the expense of the weak and at the expense of their rivals. Um, And when you look at U.S. history, of course, we had a huge campaign of territorial expansion across the continent, but then it just kind of stopped, right? And so in a lot of historical uh, treatments of U.S. history, you'll uh, see accounts of westward expansion, and then the story will just kind of shift and territory right. will be out of the picture and instead we'll be dealing with markets and with interventions abroad and world wars and things like that. But annexation of territory really kind of drops out of the story. And so uh, I set out to basically explain why that happened, why annexation disappeared from the U.S. foreign policy agenda, right? why the United States 
never conquered Canada or Mexico or Cuba or other places that they might have. Um, right. And uh, ultimately, what it uh, really came down to was U.S. leaders' uh, decision that they didn't want to share their self-government uh, with people that they viewed as just fundamentally alien, um, that there was a, a powerful interaction between democracy on one hand uh, and their their drive for self-government, their, their prioritization of self-government, and xenophobia on the other hand, um, their equally powerful uh, identities that, that, that saw themselves as one group of people, one nation, uh, and uh, that wanted to keep others or those they viewed as, as fundamentally different uh, out of that, not to share uh, self-government with them. Um, and that set some pretty powerful boundaries on, uh, on U.S. leaders' ambitions, right? It wasn't as if they were just going for resources wherever they could find them or going for more population like many other historical empires had done. Right? Population is the key to agency uh, in right. politics. It's the key to economies, to militaries and everything. Um, and oddly enough, U.S. leaders didn't want to just grab, grab people wherever they could find them and conscript them into their military and, and tax them and such. Um, they wanted a government for themselves as they interpreted themselves and that identity excluded a lot of the people they found nearby. So something that I think that was quite interesting that you point out in the book was that this is not unlike other empires that are sort of contemporary to um, sort of the early United States, right? Like there are European empires. They also don't want to share their government with uh, the people that they're subjugating and and um, subjecting to imperialism, but they have a different model for how to deal with that, which, as you call in the book, is just imperialism. Um, why does the United States think about these things differently? I mean, in other words, why doesn't the U.S. pursue um, a colonial territorial empire um, like its European counterparts in what they viewed as as the old world? Why does it see um, sort of expansion as basically annexation, and then they would have to be subjected to um, eventual statehood and becoming a part of the United States. Why, why do American leaders think about this differently? It's a good question. And it really boils down to the distinction between annexation on the one hand, which involves territorial expansion, where you integrate that new territory into the state, you develop it into your, um, your home institutions, um, you know, the people who live there, participate in the same way that the people who lived in the rest of the country uh, participate in government. Um, and so that's annexation versus imperialism, where it's also territorial expansion, but the new territory gets subordinated under hierarchical institutions that are separate from the homeland. Um, right. And so usually when we think of empires, we think of a metropole, a, you know, an imperial center that dominates the, the far-flung uh, colonies, say, like in the, the British Empire or the French Empire. Um, although, interestingly enough, in some of those cases, the leaders in Britain and leaders in, in France and so on um, did grapple with uh, dilemmas in, as far as should they extend representation. And, and it really gets back to some of that interrelationship between uh, liberalism and empire, the, the democracy side of things in empire. And as uh, democracy was kind of developing in the British context and the French context and the American context, for that matter, all kind of along the same 
historical timeline, as you alluded to, um, these dilemmas arose uh, in, in in the different uh, countries as well. The difference, I think, was in a major way, Britain, France, and others had a long imperial history that was very deeply uh, embedded in their societies uh, and in their politics, whereas the U.S. had the benefit of its anti-imperial founding, right, throwing off the yoke of the British imperial rule. Um, that yeah. gave a pretty strong anti-imperial identity uh, to the U.S. right from the start. And that kind of provoked a, a crisis of identity every time the U.S. would go and and confront the possibility of permanent imperialism of its own. So on the one hand, the United States really has been an empire ever since it was founded. Um, right from the beginning, the stretch of territory between the Appalachian Mountains and the Mississippi River was just owned by the federal government, essentially, uh, under subordinate institutions you know, run by territorial governors uh, that reported to the executive branch, not uh, not represented as states in the union. And, you know, in a different patchwork kind of over time, some territories became states, others were acquired. And right up until today, we have Puerto Rico and, and other unincorporated territories still that are ruled in more or less hierarchical fashion uh, under the U.S., not states of the Union uh, that are fully integrated. And so um, the U.S. had this, this mechanism set up to incorporate new states, and that gave the impression and the assumption that most new acquisitions would eventually become states. Um, and that's kind of how U.S. leaders circumvented this dilemma of, well, we can have imperialism, but it's always temporary. Right? We're working towards right. statehood. Um, whereas for the British and French and others, imperialism was kind of a fact of the time and a fact of the day and, and a part of their their system to its core. Um, and that actually made some pretty big dilemmas for them uh, in cases like, say, France and Algeria, where uh, France actually did expand uh, its domestic representation to uh, the right. settler population in Algeria for a time. Um, right. But of course, that settler population being built on the dispossession of the local uh, Muslim Algerian population um, bred conflict, of course, over the decades, uh, resulting in uh, eventual independence. Um, but for the U.S., it was always expansion meant eventual statehood. It meant expanding the United States itself, even if in practice, sometimes that was uh, delayed. Uh, of course, states varied by how long they took to become uh, admitted as states to the Union. Um, and anywhere from Texas and California that were pretty quick to uh, something like Oklahoma that took a century from the Louisiana Purchase up until it was the 20th century when uh, Oklahoma was eventually admitted. I think it was 1907, I want to say. Um, and of course, that had a lot to do with the concentration of Native American tribes there. Um, Oklahoma was the Indian Territory. Um, right. And so that, uh, and that, that's a pattern that played out um, across much of the central and western United States, right? in areas that where there were concentrations of non-white settlers, uh, non-white populations rather, where white settlers hadn't been able to kind of dominate the local politics and set up their own relatively stable governments, um, those areas were kind of held off uh, as territories for longer, um, whereas the ones where there were uh, local governments that, that U.S. leaders saw as essentially kindred made up of their own constituents that had migrated westward, um, they were welcomed in as states much more quickly. So... I, I think that something you sort of were alluding to just now when you were when you were speaking was sort of this tension that um, early American leaders were um, experiencing between um, sort of this anti-imperial identity that was sort of core to the American founding, right? As, as 
sort of being created as a state through a revolution and, and throwing off the yoke of the British Empire. But then you do also have sort of that more classic tendency, which you talk about in the book, um, especially when you're talking about why annexation might be different from other forms of territorial expansion, which is um, why, on the other hand, you still have this desire to expand, right? So I, I guess the question is, how do early American leaders or American leaders in the periods that you're talking about, which is actually quite a long time, how do they grapple with this tension? Because on the one hand, right, why, why not just be content with what they sort of get at the beginning after, uh, after sort of overthrowing the British? I mean, why do they decide um, to expand uh, at all? Uh, at least in the beginning. I mean, as, and as you point out, they're even doing it, doing it during the American Revolution, which I think we often forget about or most Americans don't even know about. Yeah, a lot of our history books and, and classes and things kind of start with 1776 and right. the implication kind of or that what students take away often, uh, even if kind of subconsciously, is that, well, that's when history started, right? That was the beginning <laughs> of the United States. And until then, right. there was nothingness. And then the U.S. was born. Um, but of course, that's not how it happened, right? History is a continuous process. And uh, the colonial history strongly influenced the early uh, period of American history. Um, um, and so even amid the revolution, as the Revolutionary War is going on, there are settlers who are moving west into Kentucky and other areas, you know, coming into conflict with local Native American tribes and uh, trying to set their footholds in, in different areas and such. And of course, the diplomacy during the revolution um, had the area between the Appalachians and the Mississippi River um, right at the forefront. Uh, U.S. leaders adamantly demanded that that region be part of the United States. Uh, Spain had its eye on that region for its own purposes, uh, controlling everything west of the Mississippi at that time. Um, and so it was really just kind of up to British leaders what to do with it. Um, and in many ways, the United States was very fortunate that Lord Shelburne, British uh, leader right. at the time, basically said, OK, I'll give it to you because he didn't want Spain to have it either. Um, but uh, it easily could have been something else, right? They could have made it into a Native American territory or tried to hold on to it or given it to um, some sort of international arrangement or given it to Spain or France or, or anyone else. Um, and uh, so the, uh, the United States had that expansionist drive right from the start, for sure. Um, now, the interesting tension is that you know, in one area where where we can get really kind of generalizing to all of international history is there's this tension between trying to grow, trying to expand, trying to expand your resources and your capabilities to be able to achieve ever grander goals, um, but then also the demands that expansion brings on you. And so there are, of course, logistical resource demands and, and in all cases, but in a case like the United States, there's also demands when it comes to the demands of self-government and how you define yourself and what the nation is, who should share in self-government and, and who else uh, kind of is better left governing themselves as a separate political entity. Um, and this is the big point of divergence, right? The U.S. leaders looked at different areas where they might want to expand and had to think about these things. They couldn't just go and say, look, there's lots of resources there. There's great right. farmland. There are mineral resources. There's uh, goods that we can, uh, we can 
uh, gather here and, and sell on international markets or you know, whatever. Um, they couldn't just go for the, the resources as they found them. Um, they also had to really take into account the demographics of those territories. And so it wasn't just a matter of how many people live there and how much resistance will there be, what kind of military costs might be required to put down any such resistance, that sort of thing. But also, you know, even if we succeed, what then do we have, right? Do we have right. a society of people who we think should share in our society? Um, and this is a, a consideration that comes into play more and more probably in the modern context as nationalism has spread and a much greater sense of identity in a lot of different parts of the world has, has developed on a national level, um, then the kind of appropriate bounds of a country uh, are seen as fitting with the bounds of its nation. Um, but at the time, there was much less of that identity out there and there was more kind of to be molded and U.S. leaders thought actively, you know, about different groups that they encountered. Do these groups kind of share enough of our identity that they should um, should be given self-government, should be able to participate in self-government with us? And of course, a lot of biases uh, came into play, religious, racial, uh, and so on, in terms of people that U.S. leaders just saw as being uncompromisingly uh, excluded from their identity, that they they were too monarchic, Catholic uh, in, in Quebec. They were uh, you know, dark-skinned uh, in Mexico and Cuba. They uh, were you know, Spanish-speaking and, and so on. And all these identity characteristics that for U.S. leaders at the time disqualified large populations from potential U.S. citizenship. Um, and it really speaks to the way that uh, features like race and, and religion and identities in a broader sense um, really shaped the bounds of the United States as it played out. So how, in your view, how would you say the European empires sort of viewed early periods of American expansion um Within North America, I mean, it's all happening in North America, but you know, within at least uh, for most of the book, within North America, is this something that they viewed with trepidation and alarm? Were they were they not so concerned about it? Of course, a lot of the the early American expansion, Louisiana Purchase, um, Florida, you know, right there, it's this is former European controlled territory. So, were European empires concerned about this? Do they think this meant that this posed a threat to their empires in North America? Or are they sort of more concerned with other things that were happening in Europe or in other parts of the world and, and weren't really paying too much attention to it? Well, I think they were paying attention. At least the ones that were concerned with overseas imperial matters were certainly paying attention to what was going on in North America at the time. Um, but I think it was only the most far-sighted of them who really kind of could envision a North American continent dominated by the United States uh, like it is today in the sense of being a completely asymmetric uh, regional balance of power. Um, and right. I think most at the time, of course, being as heavily steeped in European history as they were, um, were used to a balance of power system that was very fragile, um, that uh, was perpetually conflictual, and uh, and even 
even the ones that saw the U.S. growing and, and were happy to kind of see it grow in the moment expected it to fall into civil conflict in the future. So you have cases like in the revolution when um, England gave the Trans-Appalachian Territory to the United States. Um, you know, U.S. leaders really kind of lucked out because British leaders didn't want to see the area in the hands of Spain. Um, and in a pattern that would recur over time, European leaders were repeatedly more concerned about each other than about U.S. expansion. Um, and of course, there's a good reason for that because they were all rivals in Europe and fighting for control of uh, that continent. Um, and so a, a massive growth in power of one or another was a much greater threat than any sort of long-term growth of the United States. Um, but that pattern repeated again with the Louisiana Purchase, where uh, Napoleon voluntarily essentially thrust the whole Louisiana territory at the United States. Uh, U.S. leaders really only were interested in New Orleans to secure control of the Mississippi River and Florida to control uh, the outlets of a few other rivers uh, into the Gulf of Mexico and uh, thereby to secure U.S. exports. But nobody, Jefferson included, uh, was looking past the Mississippi and really kind of envisioning a continental state at that time. Uh, right. But Napoleon essentially you know, thought, if I'm going to let uh, New Orleans go, what's the point of keeping the rest of Central North America? Um, and so uh, just sold the whole thing. Um, and even at the time, he reflected on what a boon it would be for the United States and how rapidly the U.S. was growing and such. But he expected that, you know, it would be great for the U.S. for a decade or two, and then uh, they would inevitably fall into uh, civil conflict and probably the whole country would split apart. Um, and I think from our current position, it's really easy to look back and and kind of miss how much of a possibility that was. Right. We actually had a civil war, of course, in the 1860s. But up until that point, it was a constant threat right, that uh, states would try to secede, that uh, in yeah. the War of 1812, there was concerns about the Northeast seceding. Throughout the early few decades, there were concerns repeatedly about either the Northeast or the Southwest or both in different ways or the whole thing just breaking apart. Um, and it, it was a very fragile experiment, um, right, the, the federal government in the early years. So um, I think most European leaders were generally okay seeing the U.S. expand, kind of halfway confident that um, it would kind of collapse under its own weight at some point. Um, but even then, as the 1800s progressed, and uh, even after the Civil War, when you know that, that threat kind of was addressed head on and, and the Union prevailed, um, then there was still that, uh, that sense in, in Europe that um, the United States may be less threatening than other uh, powers in Europe were to each of their interests. And so um, right up through the, the extent of U.S. territorial expansion, um, the European leaders were you know, perhaps not overjoyed to see the U.S. expand, but certainly more concerned with each other's expansion abroad. Something that I think really struck me about the book um, was, or something that I think I expected going into reading it and, and then um, perhaps you didn't talk about as much as I thought you would. So I thought maybe I'd give you an opportunity to talk about it now is how much do you think slavery plays in all of this? Because I think a historian of this period, for example, Sean Wilentz at Princeton, who you know wrote uh, 
um, the rise of uh, American democracy from Jefferson to Lincoln, which won the Bancroft Prize in, I think, 2005, um, you know, would talk about how really the thing that's undergirding this entire period of American history, really from, of course, the ratification of the Constitution to the Civil War, is the slavery question. And um, of course, that plays into expansion of the United States, because in order to keep a balance of political representation in Congress, we need to make sure that there are roughly um, the same amount of slave states and free states so that um, Southern states don't gain more political power um, at the federal level. Of course, as um, Matthew Clark, who also happens to be a Princeton, has talked about, um, until 1860, basically, the South was controlling the United States, more or less, um, the entire period. But I guess, where do you see slavery playing into all of this, especially, you know, the book is about the domestic uh, consequences of, of annexation and how sort of the domestic politics of, of this process is really driving where the U.S. expanded and, and more importantly, where it did not. How does the politics of slavery play into, into all of this? And I was wondering if you could expand more on this or perhaps maybe you don't think it, it is as big of a deal as maybe other people might think it is. No, I appreciate the question um, because the book deals, of course, with slavery to an extent, but it doesn't right. put slavery front and center, um, partly because it's focused more on the target territories than inside the United States itself. Um, but also uh, in the context of, uh, of U.S. expansion, of course, slavery plays in, in the sectional balance of power within the Union um, and easily the number one concern uh, for the South uh, was the preservation of slavery and the addition of slave states that would help to reinforce that, that preservation within the Union. Uh, right. Of course, as the early 1800s are progressing, the population in the North is growing, in the South relatively stagnant. Um, and so within the House of Representatives, the North is gaining more and more influence, far outpacing the South by the time the Civil War broke out. Um, and so really the linchpin was the Senate, where uh, right. of course each state having two senators, population doesn't matter. What matters is the number of states that will line up in each block. Um, and so you see very intentional uh, admissions of states balancing each other out, uh, Alabama and Mississippi balanced by Indiana and Illinois and so on during the 1810s, um, and uh, explicit compromises to maintain that, that sectional balance of power. Now, that so in that sense, the admissions of statehood was powerfully driven by the politics uh, of slavery within the Union. Um, the acquisitions of the territory, uh, it becomes, it comes in in a different way, I guess, in, in that, um, and, and to your point of, of saying how the, the South kind of was controlling the Union, certainly the South was, I guess, punching above its weight, you know, given the outsized right. influence it gained through the Senate in that way beyond its population size. Um, but uh, when it came to territorial expansion, Actually, the North uh, pretty strongly and, and robustly denied a lot of Southern ambitions because, of course, as uh, as the South was ever more outweighed into the 1840s, 1850s, and so on, Southern leaders came up with all sorts of plans to try to annex any territories where they could plant new slave states, um, and the North just would have none of it. Um, so whether it was further border areas in Mexico or Cuba um, or the Dominican Republic or elsewhere in the Caribbean, um, 
Southern leaders from James Polk on uh, entertained various kinds of schemes to try to expand uh, further to create new slave states and prolong uh, Southern influence. But uh, the Northern majority in Congress, essentially that what they did was leverage their uh, their uh, size of their House delegation to deny funding to any sorts of, of schemes of that regard. So, uh, for example, James Buchanan was trying to get funding uh, to buy Cuba from Spain. And of course, the Northern majority in the House would just deny any possibility of that funding, no matter how he might frame it or, or you know, what justifications he might have to try to, to call for it. Um, so certainly slavery shapes the the ambitions of one section of the Union in terms of Southern uh, desires for new slave states and for territory that will become new slave states. And on the flip side, the rejection by the South of any territories that uh, had outlawed slavery and where they, they thought slavery was uh, basically impossible to uh, to embed. Um, but the I think the, the role of slavery in U.S. expansion really kind of gets at that broader racial divide, right? The, right. Of course, slavery within the United States was race-based explicitly. And when U.S. leaders confronted neighboring territories, you know, the role of Haiti in early U.S. history is routinely overlooked by all but people who study it. When Haiti gained independence, it was immediately uh deemed a, an existential threat to the South, right? Because it was a black republic. And so, so if it succeeded, it would show that you didn't have to be white to have a, a functioning state. Um, and it might inspire slave rebellions in the South. Um, and so Southern leaders were petrified of Haiti. Um, and, uh, you know, far beyond its material capabilities, it wasn't as if Haiti was going to invade the U.S. or anything like that. Um, and uh, that that relationship, that fear on the U.S. southern side, really powerfully shaped U.S.-Haitian relations and, and Haiti's history uh, right up to today uh, by legacy. Um, but then, when you're looking at at the other possible territories, right, when you get to areas where there are large populations, whether it's southern Mexico or Cuba uh, or the Dominican Republic, um, the the race question comes into play in a major way. Um, and whether it was pre-Civil War and under uh, the conditions of slavery or post-Civil War even, um, and amid Reconstruction and beyond, um, the powerful race-based identities and the biases that, uh, that U.S. leaders had uh, against the own, their own black population, but as well um, the uh, the darker populations they found nearby. Um, for many, especially Southern leaders early on, um, that that racial characteristic just fundamentally ruled them out as potential U.S. citizens, um, and so that those populations proved to be a powerful deterrent rather than an attraction for territorial expansion. Something that you were just saying that I wanted to sort of pick up on a little bit was talking about sort of targets for annexation, and you were you had mentioned that Southern leaders, um, you know, were so of course like less interested in places where slavery was outlawed or where they thought maybe slavery wouldn't um, thrive as well. But a place that does wind up becoming a massive part of the South uh, is Texas, and um, American settlers who went into um, what, when it was called Tejas, when it was a part of Mexico, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm I'm fairly positive that slavery wasn't allowed there. And then, of course, they had the Texas Revolution and became an independent republic. And um, 
brought slavery in there, even though the environment in Texas or what becomes Texas is not um, super con- conducive to um, slavery's agricultural and economic practices. Um, but then through various means, of course, which we can sort of unpack and which, of course, you're going to know more about than me, um, we have the Mexican-American War, which um, you know some might say was, uh, of course, engineered by various uh, factions, both either within the United States or within the the independent Republic of Texas, because you have a, a very large group of people in Texas, especially who are living in what would, we would now think of as, as Eastern Texas, who started the Texas Republic because they wanted to become a state and become part of the United States. And so there was sort of this like regional divide in Texas, whereas Western Texas people were sort of more interested in um, generally being independent. Um, so I was wondering if you could sort of talk about the Texas case and maybe speak a little more broadly about sort of forces from below the American state, if you will, who are putting upward pressure on the American state to maybe make this a target of, of annexation, like for example, Texas. Yeah. Um, there are others who are more familiar with uh, the, the pre-independence period of Texas history than, than I am, but my understanding is that certainly there were slaves in Texas. Slavery was explicitly allowed under independent Texas, but slavery began in Texas prior to that. Um, although slavery was outlawed in Mexico, um, I believe the U.S. settlers brought slaves prior to uh, to 1836 when they declared right. independence. Um, and certainly when uh, when Texan leaders declared independence and uh, requested annexation to the United States, um, that was one of the easiest uh, possible cases that the Texan leaders were uh, immediately wanting to, to join the Union. U.S. Right. leaders saw them as as Americans. They, there was no difference in identity there. Um, they literally just moved from the United States 10 years earlier, in many cases, that sort of thing. And and so the, the identity argument was very easy to make there. Um, and, uh, and an interesting thing about, uh, that case actually is that, well, a couple of interesting things, one that Texan leaders themselves had all sorts of expansionist ambitions that, uh, typically <laughs> yeah. are left out of the, the historical story, but there yeah. were maps and visions of, you know, a, a Texan empire to the Pacific and such. Yeah. Um, and, uh, of course, all of that, uh, there was a little bit of a hedge there just in case the U.S. continued to say no. But that's the other really interesting part of, of the Texas case is that U.S. leaders said no when, when Texas asked for annexation. Right? right. We often forget that as well. We think, okay, 1845, Texas joined the Union, became a state. But it was 1836 when Texas was independent. And there was 10 years there when Texan leaders were consistently saying, you know, hey, United States please let us in. We're, right. you know, we're Americans here. We have our own government set up. We're ready to become a state. And U.S. leaders just kept saying no. Um, right. And the reasons why had everything to do with uh, sectionalism and and the uh, rejection of more slave states on the part of Northern leaders in, in Congress. And um, and it was actually, a, it took a, a tremendous effort from uh, the administration of President John Tyler to basically craft public relations messages and sell Texan annexation to different publics in different parts of the union. Um, and even then only uh, get Texas uh, through Congress by joint resolution, which was at the time a controversial and a new procedure for annexation. Um, so uh, it was really a kind of a close thing. And, and even the Senate vote, I believe, 
came only two votes away from failing uh, on Texas annexation, even in 1845. So um, that's one of those kind of inflection points where, you know, know, two people were out sick that day and Texas doesn't become a state. And then, you know, what happens moving forward? Um, But uh, of course, uh, as it played out, uh, then you have the annexation of Texas followed immediately by the Mexican-American War um, that uh, brings California, New Mexico, uh, Arizona into the United States as well. Um, but even there, right again, that case, perhaps more sharply than any other, uh, really shows the the intentionality of uh, U.S. leaders' expansion and in defining the targets they wanted and distinguishing them from the targets they didn't want, very largely on the basis of demographics. Um, that in the at the time when the United States conquered California, uh, there were a matter of thousands of Mexicans living above the line of the territory the U.S. took, um, and millions living below that line. Um, and it was there's just no shortage of quotes, as as you saw in the chapter of U.S. leaders explicitly saying, "We want the uninhabited territory or sparsely inhabited territory that we can fill with our settlers," and we really don't want the population. They can all, you know, keep their own country in the land that they're densely populating. It's, it's really, um, I think worth highlighting sort of the contingency in, in Texas becoming part of the United States. Cause as you rightfully point out, there's a period of almost a decade where, you know, leaders in Texas were saying, Hey, you know, okay, we became a independent Republic because, um, uh, you know, we wanted to be part of the U.S. And then, you know, starting with Andrew Jackson, he was saying no. And then, um, you know, going to to John Tyler, um, of course, there are two presidents in between them, but John Tyler basically gets thrown out of his party <laughs> over this issue um, and basically is like politically homeless in large part over the um, the Texas annexation issue. There are other things in play as well. Uh, he was also not very well liked, but um, as a person, but it is really interesting sort of talking about, you know, sort of the thrust of the book, the themes of the book, how there are massive um, sort of domestic consequences for pursuing annexation, annexation as policies. I mean, you have a, a president who, um, you know, this is the first quote unquote accidental president because um, he becomes president because William Henry Harrison had, of course, died a, a month into being office. And no one really knew, even if John Toller was president, at least there were a lot of people making that argument. He was just acting president. He wasn't the real president um, because the order of presidential order of secession was not clearly well defined at all. But it's interesting that that over this issue, he the, the Whigs basically toss him out of the party because he's trying to, as you say, like, um, get Texas into the union. And a lot of Whigs for sectional reasons are, are not really um, interested in, in having that happen. So it really, um, as you say, is, is quite an interesting case that has uh, a lot of repercussions for, for uh, domestic politics in the United States. Um, and, I, and I think one of the themes that really, you know, for readers who dig into those case studies, one theme that really will jump out is that contingency, right? And this is something right. that, um, you know, the Peaky Eagle is really that, that at that borderline between political science and history, um, with certainly a foot solidly on, on both sides. Um, but myself being a political scientist by, by training, um, this is one area where historians, of course, tend to do a better job um, in terms of emphasizing that contingency. 
agency. Um, and right. political scientists, of course, look for patterns and, and try to build consistent theories and such. Um, but uh, the when it comes to U.S. territorial expansion, you know, any broad, any, any theory that gets too deterministic is bound to fail um, because there were those cases where literally someone just made a decision, you know, whether it's in London or in Paris or wherever to say, okay, sure, you have this territory, you know, go ahead. And if they decided differently, then it's a whole different story. Or right. like in this case, uh, you know, if if two folks are out sick and the vote goes either way, um, Texas isn't annexed, and then what happens with Mexico and, and so on. Um, and there are so many inflection points like that where huge changes came about. Um, right, declaring war on Spain over Cuba was something that, of course, had all sorts of uh, fallout after 1898 uh, into the American uh, global presence. I'm sure we'll get to in a bit. Um, right, so many of those inflection points, that that contingency of the story, is something that, looking back from a modern perspective, is very easy to lose track of because uh, so much seemed inevitable. Right, the the U.S. was more powerful than its neighbors, so it expanded, um, and that's a big part of the perspective of this book, uh, that it really tries to, to get back to that question of, well, you know, was that expansion really inevitable or, you know, where did its limits come from? Why didn't the U.S. just keep going? Why not take Canada and Mexico as well and Cuba and, and the Caribbean and so on? Um, right. It wasn't because of power, right? Any, any kind of straightforward treatment that looks at material cost benefits, military cost benefits, things like that, um, is bound to come up short because, of course, the U.S. went on to rise to an unprecedented position of global unipolarity in the 20th century, um, and yet didn't start conquering its neighbors again. Um, so uh, it's really kind of building in that that complexity throughout and that contingency throughout and looking at um, you know why those decisions were made was, is a really a big part of the driving uh, features of this book. Shifting northward now, I mean, I was wondering if you could talk more about the Canada case, which I think is very interesting. I mean, you know, speaking from an American perspective, I mean, we're both Americans talking about um, this book, of course, but it's interesting because I think that a lot of Americans, right, Canada is our northern neighbor. Um, I think a lot of Americans sort of maybe might struggle with, um, I think, to put it in a, in a very crude way, um, that Canada is like an actually different independent country than we are. And, and you know, we have a lot of cultural similarities between the two. Um but they have a completely different history and and have developed uh, differently, even though there are some similarities. Um, but you know, there were there was a period where um, American leaders thought about incorporating Canada or trying to incorporate Canada into the United States, which you talk about. It's one of your major cases, and um, I think that you very persuasively argue that you know, especially Eastern Canada, which is much more populous and and then therefore demographically different, especially with all the French influence in places like Quebec um, and Montreal. Uh, that this might be too difficult and, and, and it's not worth it. But I was wondering if you could sort of unpack that a little more for our listeners and, and talk about, well, you know, these countries have developed um, in a parallel fashion, but um, Canada never wound up becoming part of the U.S. And, and there are very explicit reasons for that. And, and so I think that is a really interesting history that um, a lot of people are not really familiar with. But at the same time, there are a lot of early American leaders who were quite obsessed with Canada and trying to get it in part of the United States uh, in one way or another. 
Yeah, it's so interesting because Canada, you know, on one sense, uh, feels so familiar these days, right? It's yeah. such a kindred kind of country. It's always been there and so on. And yet, of course, Canada is not and has never been one monolithic kind of thing that you just right. all or none, you know, one piece sort of thing. And really going back all the way to the revolution, uh, of course, if you read the documents during that period, the revolutionary leaders desperately wanted Quebec to be on board. Quebec was right. the next big colony. It was the other big one that was sitting out there and not part of the alliance during the revolution. Um, and so adding it to the fold would have meant that essentially all the big colonies are on board and would have faced Britain with that much, you know, kind of more consequential of a coalition uh, in declaring independence. Um, right. And uh, understandably coming out of the experience of the Seven Years' War a decade earlier and, and so on, uh, the population of Quebec said, you know, no thanks, we'll sit this one out. Um, and uh, and But U.S. leaders didn't stop wanting and trying. And what's most important, I think, at that time is to recognize that during the revolution, the United States was not a country. It was not one yeah. unified nation state. It was an alliance of 13 independent colonies that then turned into independent states. Um, and of course, that's you know obvious to anyone who reads the documents in that period that talk about independent states, plural, um, but gets totally lost from the modern perspective where now we think of the United States as, as one country. Um, but it's really only with the Constitution that that comes about, where that level of integration uh, in the federal government gets there. Um, during the revolution under the, the Confederation, uh, Articles of Confederation and the Continental Congresses before that, um, it was really a straightforward alliance. And so integrating one more uh, ally into an alliance doesn't compromise your domestic sovereignty in any way, any meaningful way. It just adds more capabilities to the coalition, more resources to the coalition. Um, and so, you know, no reason why U.S. leaders would not have wanted Quebec in the in the coalition at that time. Um, but the interesting contrast comes into play when you fast forward to the War of 1812. Um, right. That's where I have a, a separate diplomatic history article on that subject that um, is based on a lot of the same research in the case study in the book, where uh, looking at you know what U.S. leaders actually wanted in the War of 1812. It's one of the, the biggest misconceptions about that war was that the U.S. was trying to conquer and annex Canada in the War of 1812. Um, and it's easy to think that because... The U.S. did invade Canada, right? Sent military forces across the border. It was the target. Um, but Canada was the target because it was essentially the only place where the U.S. could actually strike at Britain um, yeah. because Britain controlled the seas. So what's the U.S. going to do? It can't sail over and attack London. Um, and so they said, OK, we can attack Canada at least. And at the time, there was a strategic rationale for doing that. Um, the, the War of 1812 took place amid the Napoleonic Wars. Britain is desperately trying to stave off uh, Napoleon's France and, and to survive as a state uh, against Napoleon's onslaught. And it depended on its navy to do that. And after Napoleon secured his control of uh, most of mainland Europe and he was pushing towards Russia and the Baltics, uh, where uh, Britain got a lot of its naval supplies from. Uh, Quebec was basically the last source. It was the main source of, of naval uh, materials for Britain. And so threatening Quebec would be a big bargaining ship, right? That would be a big uh, thing that would make British leaders think twice. And in the context of that period, uh, what U.S. leaders were really concerned about was British restrictions on maritime trade amid the Napoleonic Wars. So U.S. leaders thought, okay, if we threaten Canada, 
that'll be the bargaining chip that'll you know put bring the British to the table and force them to remove these maritime restrictions. Unfortunately, of course, British leaders cared a lot more about defeating Napoleon than about whatever the U.S. was doing at the time, and so uh, they just let the war happen uh, rather than give in and release the uh, relieve the restrictions against trade with Europe. Um, but at the time, right, what, what stands out is that neither the Madison administration nor leaders in Congress were actively targeting Quebec for conquest, or for annexation. Uh, they were using it as a bargaining chip in these economic negotiations, um, essentially. And uh, there are several major pieces of evidence that jump out there, right? One, the U.S. military was not prepared for the War of 1812, uh, famously not prepared, right? As much as U.S. leaders made rosy prognostications about the war, um, historians are are pretty much unified on viewing those as foolish because the U.S. was just not ready to fight a war. And if U.S. leaders had actually been out for conquest, they could have gotten ready, right? You know, think that conquerors build armies to conquer with. Uh, The U.S. didn't do that. Um, And uh, in fact, there's a a pretty uh, powerful memo that that the Madison administration sent to their uh, representative in London when war was declared. The U.S. declared war on on Britain, sent the instructions to their man in London, uh, a guy named Jonathan Russell, uh, saying, essentially, we've declared war. So, you know, tell the British that. Um, But we don't really want to fight this war and we think they don't want to fight it either. So here are some examples of arguments that you can use to convince them to back down. So we don't, we can just avoid this whole thing. Um, one of those arguments was we might make an alliance with France. Another argument was we might conquer and, and keep Canada. Um, and that the, a quote from that, that it might be difficult to relinquish territory, which had been conquered um, is frequently quoted as evidence of expansionism um, and taken entirely out of context because it was literally an argument for why we shouldn't fight the war and the British should just relieve the maritime restrictions and go back to normal. Um, but uh, but even on top of that, right, in Congress at the time, there were only a handful of genuine expansionists and they were folks mostly from like the Buffalo area of New York who had land speculation deals over the border and stuff like that who would want to profit for themselves. Um, and even they drew maps of Canada that basically carved Quebec out as potentially an independent country. And then the U.S. would take everything to the West. Um, And this gets back again at how Canada was not just one monolithic thing at the time, uh, and even up all the way through the 1800s, really. um, Eastern Canada was much more densely populated than Western Canada. And where the line between East and West was moved steadily westward as Canadian settlers expanded westward. Um, But U.S. leaders consistently targeted the Western parts that were sparsely populated because they basically would be more of the same for the U.S., right? American settlers could could settle there, just like they were settling in the plains and in the West Coast and such. Um, but they pretty routinely said, no thanks, you know, Quebec can stay on its own, um, and eventually then Ontario can stay on its own. Um, but interestingly, even after the Civil War, Secretary of State William Henry Seward was still interested in adding British Columbia to the U.S. Um, right. In fact, he he thought that the purchase of Alaska might put that much more pressure or, or lure, uh, alternatively, the settlers that were there. Uh, really, only a matter of ten thousand or so, even settlers, you know, in the, in the main settlement there in British Columbia at the time, um, might you know drive them to to say, okay, we want to join the U.S. and not not go with Britain. Um, and again, it kind of speaks to our 
our misunderstanding of what Canada was up until the 1860s. It was kind of a hodgepodge of broad areas of wilderness that were technically owned on paper by the Hudson Bay Company and such like that, um, not a unified political um, uh, center. Uh, and so it really, it was there was a, a pressure point in the late 1860s when right. the U.S. and Britain were both trying to lobby this, this little settler population in British Columbia uh, to get them to want to alternatively join the U.S. or stay with Britain. Um, and it was only when the uh, British Crown uh, agreed to build a transcontinental railroad that would connect them with the rest of Canada uh, going eastward that they said, okay, yeah, we're happy to stay. Um, and that kind of ended it um, because it was never really worth it for the U.S. to you know to invest a lot of resources to threaten <laughs> President James Polk, of course, did kind of bluster about um, 4440 or fight and such, you know, wanting British Columbia for the U.S., but um, but uh, it was never really worth it in the eyes of U.S. leaders to launch a military campaign, say, or to fight Britain over British Columbia, that sort of thing. Um, so when, the, when Britain went about and integrated it with Canada, the U.S. just kind of let it go. Hmm. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, I mean, I think that what sort of comes out in the book is sort of a lot of the continuities and the ways that um, American leaders thought about uh, territorial expansion and, and annexation, um, which, again, I, I found to be incredibly persuasive. But I was wondering sort of within that broad framework, if you could talk a little bit more about the discontinuities between um, different American presidents or, or different generations of congressional leaders or American leaders in general who were sort of debating and discussing the issues of annexation and enlarging and growing the United States. If um, there was anything that maybe surprised you or, or just more generally, um, how does this very broad process shift over time, you know, let's say between, um, you know, the, the ratification of the Constitution and then the Civil War? Yeah, it's an interesting question um, because I think the book definitely does focus more on continuities than on discontinuities, right. in particular because a lot of the historical literature broadly written frames the U.S. as having this period of territorial expansion early on and then a break point where it then kind of switches gears to commercial expansion instead. And so right. there's this kind of narrative of a discontinuity at some point, whether it's 1840s or after the Civil War or whenever, um, that... Uh, there's kind of these two eras. And I don't think that's accurate. I think that there was uh, a much more consistent uh, expansionism going on, but there were always limits on uh, the territories that the U.S. leaders were interested in. And so expansionism, uh, annexation fell off the agenda uh, really just when they ran out of desirable targets. Um, and the, the process was still the same. The reasons they wanted the territories was still the same. It was just that they had basically gotten all the territories they wanted and didn't see any that were left that they really wanted anymore. Um, I think the biggest actual point of discontinuity uh, does come in 1898 um, with the Spanish-American War, the resulting acquisition of the Philippines and Guam and Puerto Rico, um, and the uh, decision to create an official category of unincorporated territories that have no path to statehood. Um, and that was uh, primarily a response to the Philippines itself. The Philippines had millions and millions of, of inhabitants who yeah. U.S. leaders 
you know, just on a racial uh, basis alone, uh, saw as having zero path to potential state uh, citizenship. Um, the U.S. Uh, decided to uh, to keep sovereignty over the Philippines, not to give it back to Spain, not to set it independent. Um, but then the question of what do we do with it, you know, is front and center. And uh, there, if there was a consensus on anything, it was that it can't be a state. Um, and so uh, that kind of forced U.S. leaders' hand and people got creative and said, oh, well, you know, the Constitution never technically said we have to make everything a state. Um, that's just something we've always been doing. Uh, and so we can just hold this one as uh, an unincorporated territory. Um, and, uh, and, and so then that becomes an island policy that gets applied to Puerto Rico and Guam and others as well. Um, and that was a big break because up until that point, as I mentioned, you know, annexation had gone hand in hand with territorial expansion. Even if not immediately, there was always that understanding that eventually at some point territories would be ready for statehood. Um, and I think we've kind of returned to that view in a sense with regard to Puerto Rico. The conversation is always there and it kind of feels like at some point it'll happen. Um, right. But but the Philippines was long since let go after World War II, uh, set independent. And the, the path to independence was even started long before that. Um, yeah. So that was a, a real break point in, in 1898 where uh, the U.S. said, OK, we can actually take on and, and hold territories without any path to statehood. Um, interestingly, that was also a case I think that's overlooked uh, to some extent in terms of uh, setting a new precedent for interventions abroad. Um, the U.S. around that time really kind of reached a consensus view that, you know, we're kind of done with the whole territorial expansion, annexation, making new states kind of thing. Hawaii can be the last one because it was so important for Pacific defense. Um, but then uh, moving forward, U.S. leaders kind of looked back to 1898 and said, you know, that was a kind of a good way to do things. You know, there was a genocide going on in Cuba. We went in and drove Spain out, saved the day, right? It plays into nationalist you know, identity myths and such. Um, and But the bottom line being that it was a, a temporary military intervention, right? It, as much as, uh, you know, obviously the U.S. was still engaged with Cuban affairs moving forward beyond that point, um, the actual exercise of occupation and sovereignty, you know, temporarily over the, the territory um, was explicitly, you know, came to be seen as something that the U.S. wasn't doing anymore for the sake of keeping territory indefinitely, but that it would do increasingly for the sake of kind of fixing problems it saw in other parts of the world and then right. bringing its troops home. It's, it's interesting talking about sort of the, the Cuba case because um, Charlie Laterman at King's College London over, over here um, wrote a book called Sharing the Burden, which um, came out uh, in the fall of 2019. So roughly around the same time that, that your book came out. And, you know, he talks a lot about how the sort of American response to what's happening in Armenia at the time, um, which is sort of the, the mass killings that are happening at the end of the 19th century, of course, before the Armenian genocide is going to happen during World War One, and how American policymakers sort of newly cognizant of their, um, you know, extraordinary power, uh, their nation's power, rather, see what's happening over there. And of course, they they sort of empathize a lot with, but don't feel that they can do anything. But at the same time, 
what's happening in Cuba is, you know, right on America's doorstep. And so here's an opportunity for us to actually do something about it. And, and I was sort of thinking about that as well um, when I was reading the relevant sections of your book, sort of talking about how the annexation issue sort of crops up back up again in 1898. But as you, as you just mentioned, now the U.S. feels, okay, we have the ability to actually administer um, territories or rule territories without sort of bringing them into the United States for, and, and a lot of the issues that have been happening throughout the 19th century are coming up again, because, you know, we have these peoples who are very different from the ones who are generally in the United States, and this would be an absolute mess trying to bring them into the U.S. And so I thought that that was sort of a really interesting um, parallel. The Also, the subject of my dissertation research, when he was, uh, his name's Henry Stimson, long before he was a uh, uh, U.S. foreign policy official, when he was a young lawyer, wrote a, a letter to one of his friends saying, uh, sort of blasting um, people who thought that the Philippines could possibly enter the United States because uh, not that Stimson was an anti-imperialist, but um, or I guess he was by by virtue of this position, but because you know he felt you know how could the Philippines, which is so different from what's happening in uh, how can a place like the Philippines, which is so different from the United States, how could that possibly be part of the United States? For another reason, that's also that you know thousands of miles away. I mean, so is Hawaii, but um, it would just be chaos trying to bring uh, the Philippines, which has just a completely different history and culture, and try and bring that into the United States, and try and also to give it democratic self-government after it been ruled by the Spanish for over three hundred years. Um, so it's it's just really interesting how people sort of um, at the top of society and also um, in other places as well are, are sort of feeling similarly about the Philippines and and other. Uh, uh, other colonial acquisitions as well as a result of the War of 1898. Yeah, I think the 1898 War is one of those areas where really, at least as far as I remember from childhood, the, this kind of grade school history books could really use a good rewrite because <laughs> yeah, you got to get yeah. the, the pictures of the Maine out of there. Right? And it's the, the biggest myth that yeah. the, the sinking of the battleship Maine had anything to do with the start of the war. Um, the U.S. and Spain actually agreed to arbitrate that incident and um, yeah. president mckinley had no problem with it they were going to move along like like you know it's not a it was a big deal obviously but not something they couldn't be you know negotiated out um but the the problem was just the worsening of the humanitarian situation in cuba um and more and more reports just kept coming in and in that the spanish hadn't fixed the problems they were still you know keeping the cubans in concentration camps burning the countryside to try to get at rebels and such and um the suffering was just terrible and so members of congress and senate uh, visited cuba saw with their own eyes came back and reported and there's this just consensus just emerged that you know we can't allow this so close off our coast um you know we've got to stand up and and help the cuban population but the thing that really stands out here is that the the consensus among the, uh, the senators and the, the congressmen was we've got to get Spain out, but we definitely will not let Cuba into the United States. And right. so they actually, you know, overtly say that going into the war, um, and uh, and that's you know just a remarkable thing, right, for a powerful country driving a rival out of a nearby territory 
and saying explicitly, we don't want this, um, and it's going to be for its own population. Um, the big debate in the Senate at the time was not about annexation at all. Everyone agreed we won't annex it. Um, the debate was about whether we recognize the rebels as an independent government yet or not, right. um, because there were some questions about the, the rebels as you know, their ability to govern and, and such. Um, but there were concerns that uh, if they didn't uh, recognize the rebels as independent, then Spain might try to stick the U.S. with Cuba's debt and, like, you know, assume under international law the U.S. had taken sovereignty over Cuba and this sort of thing. And so the U.S. just said, no, we're having none of that. Um, it's definitely going to be independent uh, after the war. Um, and it's just a remarkable thing, right? And, and of course, this leads into then subsequent U.S. foreign policy messing around in Cuba and other Caribbean areas, um, uh, territories, and, um, in terms of intervention, um, but not in terms of annexation. Um, and that's one of those big shifts that um, both in great power history context um, and U.S. foreign policy context, that the 20th century looks very different from the early U.S. history in terms of, of expansion. Um, and again, it goes back to these same uh, same kinds of forces, right? Viewing Cuba's population as fundamentally alien um, and uh, better left independent. Uh, and there's just countless, very colorful, very kind of shocking to modern ears uh, quotes in that chapter in that case um, that, yeah. that flesh out U.S. leaders thinking in that regard. I, that's That sort of leads into what I wanted to, the final question I had for you, which was, you know, what are in your mind, what are the implications of, of your research and of your book for how we understand um, the United States and, and sort of uh, international order in the 20th century and how the United States, um, especially in the way that you argue, behaves in a lot of ways fundamentally differently from sort of previous great powers um, or previous superpowers, if you want to use that term. Um, what, what, what are the implications um, of your book in explaining, you know, why why doesn't the United States try and conquer additional territory, especially after winning two world wars or, or during any period during the 20th century? I think the book's implications are absolutely central for understanding the origins of the modern international system and the order that the U.S. Uh, built after World War One, after World War Two, and up to the present day. Um, it's really a remarkable thing that. Even as the United States continued to get more and more powerful, uh, again, rising to a position of global unipolarity as a sole superpower uh, after the end of the Cold War, U.S. leaders still have no interest in further territorial expansion. Um, and of course, that doesn't mean the U.S. hasn't expanded its influence in all sorts of other ways, right? right. Military bases abroad, getting in, interfering in all sorts of different uh, situations all around the world. But in terms of conquering neighboring peoples and subjecting them to your own rule, the U.S. lost interest entirely in that. Uh, never really was all that interested in in conquering nearby peoples. It wanted the land and the resources and such. Um, but it's a fundamentally different kind of uh, approach. It, in a way, kind of chops off the the most violent and direct uh, end of the spectrum when it comes to foreign policy tools that uh, the U.S., uh, when it's dealing with situations nearby, doesn't try to conquer the people there. Instead, it might launch a military intervention and then withdraw. It might kind of work for regime change. It might apply economic sanctions or diplomacy or whatnot. Um, but conquest was essentially off the table. Um, and that uh, that really powerfully drove the way the U.S. shaped that international order after the World Wars. Um, 
Woodrow Wilson after World War I was absolutely key, injecting a prohibition of conquest into international law uh, that was subsequently uh, confirmed, held up, uh, and, and instituted after World War II in the founding of the United Nations and the UN Charter, um, which itself was designed uh, by the uh, Franklin Roosevelt administration. Um, and, uh, and so a, in terms of shaping the international order in the 20th century, and that endures today, um, the U.S. decision to reject conquest is absolutely central. Um, but the reasons for it were selfish ones. Right? It wasn't that uh, the U.S. was a superhero out there trying to do what's best for the world. It was a superpower, eventually, but a selfish one. And right. it didn't want conquest because it didn't want it. Right. It's not that it was constrained from the outside by other balancing powers. It wasn't that uh, it was trying to be nice and respect the sovereignty of its neighbors. It was that U.S. leaders didn't want those neighbors to be part of their country. Um, and it's really, you know, uh, it, it's, it might kind of burst the bubble of more nationalist, exceptionalist kind of views. But on the one hand, that doesn't mean the U.S. isn't and hasn't been an exceptional power to be such a powerful uh, state. and refrain from conquering neighbors itself is a very exceptional kind of behavior. But it was exceptional for really base reasons, um, selfish reasons, biased, racist reasons. Um, and so on the one hand, that that might give us, uh, you know, make us rethink our, our perspectives on U.S. history uh, and, you know, how uh, U.S. claims to be working for the, the global good or, um, you know, the purity of, of U.S. ideologies and things like that um, might need some rethinking. On the other hand, maybe it makes us feel a little bit better about how strongly embedded this current in U.S. foreign policy is that, um, you know, if, if the U.S. wasn't just, you know, having a really noble leader who refrain from conquering neighbors, but um, that it was actually out of its own selfish you know, in interests that uh, the U.S. Uh, refrained from conquering neighbors. Maybe that makes it more robust and uh, more likely to endure. And if that's the case, then the, the world having an overwhelmingly powerful country that's not interested in conquering its neighbors, I think, is a profoundly stabilizing uh, factor. Uh, I couldn't agree more, and, and I think that's a, a great um, a great point to, to end it on. So, um, Richard, thank you again so much for for coming on the show today and, and talking to me about your book. Uh, I really enjoyed our conversation, and um, I think our listeners uh, did as well. I hope so. Thanks for having me. Uh, the book is "The Picky Eagle: How Democracy and Xenophobia Limited U.S. Territorial Expansion." Uh, and you can find that with Cornell University Press. Uh, thank you again, Richard, and uh, we'll see you all again soon. Bye-bye.